Welcome to Why Are We So Restless? I'm Josh Atro, the Executive Director of the Center for Public Christianity, theologian in residence at Holy Trinity Anglican Church, and one of your co-hosts for this podcast. St. Augustine famously opened his confessions by testifying to the restlessness of the human heart and its cure. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. 1,600 years later, we still seem to be searching for that rest. This podcast is about how that old restless heart that Augustine so agonized over is still with us today, though packaged in some new ways. We hope that you find it refreshing as you consider different ways to attend to the world, your own soul, and God so that you might find true rest in Him. In this episode, John Yage, who serves on the center's pastoral leadership team and is the rector of Holy Trinity Anglican Church, explores the first root cause of our restlessness, which is the result of forgetting that we are creatures created by God with limitations and constraints and made to be dependent on Him. Following John's talk, I'll rejoin you along with my co-host and New City Fellow alumnus, Micah Vandergrift. We'll be joined by a special guest to reflect on what we have heard about how it applies to daily life. So stay with us for the second half of the podcast. We are here to consider a nagging question. And it's one that's been buzzing around in the back of my head for several years now. Why are we so restless? Why are we so restless? Why are we perpetually unsettled, hard to please, and so easily distracted? Over the last two years, we've lived through a pandemic, and it's pushed us to our limits. Millions of lives have been lost as a result of the coronavirus, and many millions more have been unsettled and upended. So for some, the virus was deadly. For others, it was society's response to the virus that pushed them over the edge. One of the consequences of this pandemic is that it's, it has exposed us. It's exposed our frailty, our brittleness, our selfishness, and our pride. All of which, of course, were true before the pandemic, but which rose to the surface as we tried our best to navigate it. So as I've thought and read and prayed about what I've seen in myself and also in the world around me, I found myself returning again and again to a constellation of topics that I think help to answer this question, why are we so restless? And this weekend, I want to share uh, the fruit of some of this reflection. And what I have to say, it, it's, I'll be honest, it's not particularly original. Uh, and that's a good thing. The, the, the one thing that you don't want in a pastor is originality. <laughs> what you want... What you want is the kind of reflective wisdom that comes through carefully filtering our lived experience through the word of God and through prayer. And my hope is that that's what you'll get this weekend. And throughout these talks, um, we're going to be looking carefully at our culture, but we're going to be critiquing ourselves. Too often, I think, we critique the culture around us and we, we spend our energy looking to correct it. Now, that's not bad, but it can be a real distraction. My goal in these talks is to consider our culture and the many ways that our culture forms us, but then to critique the ways in which we've absorbed its core mythologies before inviting us into new ways of being. I want to invite you all, uh, therefore, into a time of reflection, probably repentance, and also careful reconsidering. So with all of that in mind, as an introduction, uh, let me pray for our time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being present with us. We thank you for uh, the gift of your grace in the midst of a restless and unsettled world. Lord, we pray that as we gather in the power of your spirit under the guidance and authority of your word, that we would reflect carefully on the world and on ourselves, how we've been shaped uh, by forces other than your spirit. Pray that you would lead us to uh, repent, to change, 
uh, and to find ourselves more and more at home and at rest in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In my talks tonight, I'm going to argue that we're restless because we've forgotten that we are creatures and because we feel responsible for crafting our own identities. Tomorrow morning, I'll add to this, that we pursue happiness in the wrong direction. We've lost track of time. We've become obsessed with information in an age that's desperate for wisdom. And then finally, that we no longer know where we live. Have you ever wondered why superhero movies are so popular? Superhero movies are incredibly popular. The first Superman movie was released in 1978. And uh, I was four. Since then, dozens and dozens of superhero movies have come out, and most of them have been a success at the box office. There are now so many superhero movies based on old Marvel comic books that they are collectively known as the Marvel Universe, these movies. Uh, these movies are appealing. They're appealing because the main characters they're just like us, except for the fact that they have superhuman abilities. They're the kind of human beings that we all want to be. They're, they're us, but with superpowers. Um, well, us with superpowers, flattering outfits, and really cool gear. As entertaining as many of these movies are, they're not merely entertainment. They, I think, represent a core frustration and a guiding ideal of Western culture. And the core frustration is the fact that we are limited. We are limited in our abilities. We're limited by time, space, knowledge, power. And so we dream of breaking through our limits so that we might become superhuman versions of ourselves. We like to imagine that we possess unlimited potential. And honestly, we have good reason for for thinking that we might, since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, we have seen almost unimaginable progress in technology, which has led to incredible advances in everything from agricultural production to healthcare. So human beings live longer, healthier lives now than they ever have before. We're not, however, without limits. We don't possess superhuman strength like the Incredible Hulk. We cannot breathe underwater like Aquaman. I think that movie was a flop. We cannot fly like Superman. We can't travel through space without oxygen like Captain Marvel. We can't transverse time like Thor. Or, let's be honest, we'll never be as beautiful as Black Widow or as well-built as Captain America. We're limited. And having limits is at the heart of what it means to be human. Having limits is at the heart of what it means to be human. And this, I fear, is what even Christians have forgotten. We've forgotten that we're creatures. And as a result, we've neglected one of the fundamental truths that ought to shape our lives, and that's our dependence. So I want to turn to the opening chapters of the biblical story to consider uh, what I mean by this. And I want to start with Genesis 1, 26 to 27, which should be familiar to all of you. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. You know, we're right to marvel at the uniqueness and the dignity of human beings. Among all the creatures of the earth, only we are made in the image of God. Only we bear the special stamp of his likeness. And only we are given dominion as stewards over the rest of creation. At the heart of what it means to be human is the dignity that cascades out of these realities. But notice what is so obvious that we tend to overlook it. All of this is the action and the initiative of God. So we didn't summon ourselves into existence we didn't arise spontaneously out of the primordial soup, nor are we offspring of God, like the demigods of Greek mythology, carrying within ourselves a spark of the divine that can be fanned into eternal flame. We're creatures. We possess incredible dignity, and we've been given a remarkable vocation, but we're still creatures. 
Our entire existence is dependent on the one who made us. Genesis 2 gives a more detailed picture of the creation of humanity. This is what it says starting at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So taking a handful of dust from the ground that he'd made, God formed and fashioned a man, then setting his face against that of his creature, he breathed life into him, and man became a living creature. Now the Hebrew word for man in these verses is Adam, from which we get the proper name Adam, meaning of the ground or from the ground. The name given to the first man is a permanent reminder of his origins. He's glorious, but he's also derivative. He's been fashioned out of dirt. So our origins are simultaneously glorious and humble. In his thoughtful book on Christian spirituality, Christ plays in 10,000 places. Eugene Peterson notes the following. He says, the Latin words hummus, meaning soil or earth, and homo, meaning human being, have a common derivation from which we also get our word humble. That's the Genesis origin of who we are, dust. Dust that the Lord God used to make us a human being. Peterson goes on to, co to comment, if we cultivate a lively sense of our origin and nurture a sense of continuity with it, who knows, we may also acquire humility. So let's turn back to Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God took this incredible creature that he made, placed him in a garden, gave him a job and explained that there's one thing that was off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So part of being dependent is having limits. Immediately following this, we're told in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So God places Adam in a deep sleep. He takes a chunk of his flesh, forms Eve. She is at once his mirror image and his opposite. She's equal to him and dependent on him just as he's dependent on her. And she joins him in the garden that they've been given to cultivate. Now remember, all of this takes place before the fall. It all takes place before the fall. And this is what I want you to notice. In the perfection of God's creation, human beings are dependent. We're dependent on God for our existence. We're dependent on living within the limits that God has given us, the garden with its, with its work and its roles. And we're dependent on each other for the full expression of our human vocation. We're creatures. We are dependent, limited and constrained. And notice that all of this is true of us before sin and death ever enter the picture. This is incredibly important. Death is the ultimate constraint on our humanity. And we know that it's the result of sin, but finitude itself is not the result of sin. To be finite is to be limited in time and space and knowledge and power. And we're finite by nature, dependent on the one who's not limited by time, space, knowledge, or power. Our creatureliness is part of the very good of God's creation. So then comes Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So in this pivotal moment, what does the serpent do? The serpent invites Eve to question God and to question the limits that God has given her. What does Eve do? She takes the serpent up on his offer and the rest is history. By, by rejecting the good limits of God, 
Eve embraces destruction and ultimately death. Now, part of what this sequence teaches us is that the, at the heart of human sin is the refusal to live within our limits. Not only does Eve reject God's word in Genesis 3, she rejects God's limits. And we follow suit. We, we don't like being creatures. We don't want to be dependent or constrained. But here's the catch. We are creatures, dependent, limited, constrained. And being a creature is a good thing. So just imagine for just a moment that you're not dependent. You're not limited. You're not constrained. But that you really have, you really do have the ability to do anything you set your mind to. Well, then you are all failures. I mean, look at you. If we aren't limited, if we aren't limited, then we really are responsible for everything and for everyone around us. If we aren't dependent on God, then we really have to rely on ourselves for every ounce of meaning in life. If there are no constraints, then we're going to have to try absolutely everything before we can determine what really makes us tick. So we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes during Lent. And that's the basic message of the book, isn't it? It, It's a searing indictment of our attempt to find meaning and happiness in a world where we have attempted to reject our limits and asserted our independence from God. So is there any wonder that the repeated refrain of the book is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So are you chronically tired? Do you end each day with a a lingering sense of guilt because you didn't accomplish everything you set out to do? I've never been there, I promise. (laughs) Are you burdened by your own expectations? Do you feel responsible even in situations where you have no influence? Could this be because you wrongly believe that you're superhuman? Is your problem not so much the sin of failure or selfishness, but the assumption that you can do everything and do it well? So think about your prayer life. Think about your prayer life, what you pray for most and why. Several years ago, I was deeply convicted when I realized that far too often, when I should have been interceding on behalf of a person asking God to act in their lives. I was instead asking God to help me know what to say to them and what to do for them. Instead of asking God to use his divine power to bless, to heal, or to transform, I was asking him to help me be the agent of those things. In other words, I was asking God to let me take over. Kelly Capick in his deeply thoughtful book on creatureliness called You're Only Human, he offers a parallel observation about prayer. And he writes this. He says, we reduce prayer to wish lists, asking God to top up our abilities so we can meet the endless demands to improve us so we can overcome our limits. Um, During my brother's junior year at Carolina, He was both vice president of the student body and editorial page editor of the Daily Tar Heel. He was busy. And there came a time uh, during the middle of the year when he found himself floundering in pretty much every area of his life. He was pulling all-nighters multiple times a week. My wife, Alicia, uh, was a student at the time, and she often studied in the same library as my brother. And she remembers him arriving at the library many nights at the same time she was packing up to go home. He couldn't keep up. During this season, Chris, my brother, sought counsel from a professor who had been a real mentor to him. And after describing what was going on to the professor, the professor looked at him and he said, Chris, I've known a few undergrads who could do everything and do it well. You're not one of them. Something's going to have to go. 
It was a rude wake-up call, but it was a helpful lesson, even though uh, the professor was wrong about one thing. There's no one alive who can do everything and do it well. And yet, for some reason, so many of us think that we might just be the one imaginary undergrad who can. Our problem, our problem is that we, we equate being dependent with being deficient. We equate being dependent with being deficient. We believe that our limitations are somehow a mark of the fall rather than a good that God has built into his creation and into us. Being limited is not the same thing as being sinful. But we refuse to believe this. So we despise our contingency and our lack of agency, and we seek to control when we should be seeking to submit. As I mentioned a moment ago, Kelly Capick has uh, written a brilliant book on this subject called You're Only Human. And he sums up our problem so well. He says, we need to stop asking for God's forgiveness when we can't do everything. And we need to ask forgiveness for ever imagining we could. That frustration you sometimes feel with your inability to do it all is actually a form of rebellion against the God who made you. At the beginning of Matthew 18, the the disciples come to Jesus and they say, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to know what it takes to be at the top of the class. And Jesus responds, you know the story. He responds by calling a small child over and placing him right in the middle of the disciples. I imagine that Jesus puts hands on the kid's shoulders before saying to the disciples, truly I say to you, unless... Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now we're mistaken if we think that what Jesus is pointing to is the child's innocence. The fact that because he's so young, he's relatively free of serious sin. If that were the case, then the takeaway for the disciples would be that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who sins the least. But that runs counter to everything that Jesus does and says when he encounters the sinful. What Jesus is pointing to in the child isn't the child's innocence, it's his dependence. And the fact that a dependent life is built entirely on faith in the one on whom we depend. So the child's not going to eat unless his parents provide. He won't sleep under shelter without his parents' care. He is by nature dependent And because of his dependence, he's learned to trust those who care for him. Jesus' word to his disciples is this. If you want to be great in the kingdom, learn to embrace your absolute dependence on God so that you can grow in faith and in trust. In this context, the humility that Jesus insists on, it's not about recognizing how bad you are. It's about recognizing how dependent you are. So again, remember, humble comes from hummus, the word for dirt. We're humble because we are creatures, not just because we're sinners. And here's the good news. The good news is that God loves his creatures. He doesn't expect us to know everything. He doesn't expect us to be good at everything. He will not hold us responsible for things that are outside of our control. He doesn't expect us to be superhuman. He loves us as the dependent, limited, constrained human beings that we are. And the lesson that follows is this. If we want to live life as it was intended by God and creation, then we need to learn to depend on him, to embrace our limits and experience the constraints on our lives as gifts rather than as barriers. John Stott spent... Uh, the last 15 years of his life, slowly going completely blind. It began with a small stroke that knocked out the peripheral vision in his left eye, forcing him to surrender his driver's license. And over the years that followed, this man, this man who wrote more books during his lifetime than most of us will read in an average decade, he became unable to see the pages in front of him. But that wasn't all. His body grew increasingly weak. He needed more sleep. He was eventually confined to his bedroom. 
I spent three years working closely with John when he was in his early 70s. I was in my mid-20s. It was absolutely exhausting. I've never been around another person with a capacity for work as vast as his. He was the most disciplined and efficient man I've ever known. But there he was a few few years later in his 80s and into his early 90s with his mind as sharp as ever, but he was unable to do much of anything except to sleep, eat, and listen out his bedroom window for the call of a familiar bird. Now, I found this personally incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult to understand. Why would God allow a man like John to suffer the loss of precisely those faculties, those faculties that made his life so meaningful and his work so successful. It just seemed cruel. It would have been better, I thought, for him to die or to suffer from Alzheimer's because at least then he wouldn't have known what he was missing. But then finally, I began to understand why John never seemed to complain. That's because God was giving him the gift of absolute dependence. God was showing him that he delighted in him, that he loved him, that he cared for him, even when John had nothing to offer except his dependence on him. So why are we so restless? I think it's because we've forgotten that we're creatures. We've forgotten that we're dependent, limited, and constrained. And we've rebelled against these things, mistaking our dependency for deficiency. But God loves us the way he made us. When we forget this or when we deny our creatureliness, we actually undermine our humanity and we set ourselves up for disaster. And we see this in a particularly profound way in our present cultural moment when it comes to the search for identity. everyone. Uh, this is Micah Vandergrift. Uh, we're here uh, commenting on the series of talks from Father John Yates on why are we so restless. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Josh Chatrau, director of, uh, of the Center for Public Christianity, resident theologian here at Holy Trinity. Um, and we're uh, excited to have a guest and friend, um, Catherine Doster. Catherine, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so, my name's Catherine. Uh, I am a member here at Holy Trinity. I went through the New City Fellows Program um, a few years ago alongside my husband. And um, I am a mom of one, almost two, uh, and excited to be here. Great. We're glad to have you. Uh, so this is the, the first in the series uh, of talks on why we're so restless. Uh, and the, the topic that we're dealing with today is creatureliness. Um, I'm not going to lie. When I like first heard the title, I thought very much like creature from the black lagoon kind of <laughs> creatureliness, you know, um, but that's my, my pop. He did cult- start with superhero. That's so, right. Yeah. He did. Yeah. yeah. That, that's my pop culture brain, uh, getting right to it. Um, one of the, the, the main themes that, that father John, um, I, I, I found this to be, you know, pretty, pretty straightforward, uh, talk, right. That, um, that we are created beings and, and because of that, we have limitations, um, and one of those limitations is our dependence on God, and all of that is good. That is a good thing, right? Um, I'd love to hear, Catherine, your uh, first and general impressions from the talk. Yeah, um, I think, um, as you said, the, the talk was really straightforward. Um, and um, my first thoughts um, as I listened to it um, were primarily um, – on that aspect of dependence. I think in the past year and a half, um, since I've become a mom, uh, I have thought about dependence a lot. Um, both the dependence I have had to have on other people when my body and just my, um, myself have been stretched too thin. Um, and then also the dependency I have of this human being, this tiny life on me for sustenance for, uh, pretty much everything. Um, and also the, that trust goes hand in hand with that. Um, so that's one of the the biggest things I was thinking about and I'm sure we can get into more. Um, but yeah. Um, 
So I I have a memory of I forget how how long after you had had your your first child that you ran a race, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- thinking about creatureliness and and the createdness of our beings, um, and some some of the the early ideas that that Father John was hinting at. What I want to ask you what what does striving for or striving at limits look like in your life where, where we're trying to reach beyond our, our limits, you know, that the race was just an example that I had. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great example. Um, yeah, well, interesting. Well, I mean, one thing I, I love running, um, it's, um, always been, um, well, running, being outdoors, being athletic has always been something that I've enjoyed in life. Um, that's brought me joy that I think God created me to be good at. Um, and, um, uh, I had signed up, got this idea in my head after I had gave birth to my daughter to run an ultra marathon. Um, uh, so it was a 50 K 31 miles. Um, and, um, nine months after I'd given birth and, um, uh, I think that is, uh, yeah, that was my, um, one instance of me um, recognizing something that I love, something that I'm good at, but also striving for something that was probably beyond, was definitely beyond my body's capabilities at the time. Um, and in some ways I think was mixed with, um, a sense of pride or a sense of, I want to prove that I am still in control of my body and in control of, um, a lot of things. And what I found as I ran the race was having to listen to the limitations of my body and realize that it's okay that I couldn't finish the race. And I didn't, I made it almost three quarters of the way through the race. Um, and more more than I could ever imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, um, really recognize, Hey, I need to stop. And I think that was probably one of the first instances in my life in, in an athletic or performance setting where I, actually listened to my body and I actually did stop. Um, and, um, was surprisingly at peace with that, which I did not expect to be. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. I hadn't actually even thought about it in this context, but it's, it was probably one of the biggest ways in the past year and a half where I, it, it was one way that I think the Lord was showing me, um, that limitations are good and our body listening to our bodies and listening to, mm-hmm. um, the many ways in which the Lord says, stop, slow down, recognize, um, what is good and what is right and what is true. Um, it's really important. Um, I'm not sure if that fully answered your question. But. Yeah, you de- definitely did. Um, <coughs> Josh, you're, you're a runner too. Um, nothing like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've, I've been struck as we're going back through the, the talks about the uh, a theme that 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 we'll hear in other, in other um, as we go through the series, a theme of embodiment of faith, like the the um, yeah. how how our bodies participate in this Christian life, uh, and the ways that we try to control so much of that, and the ways that we can't, you know, and and shouldn't, and and recognize God's uh, goodness in our bodies. I'm wondering what this looks looks like f- from your perspective. Well, I mean, as a as a guy who turned forty this year, I'm feeling <laughs> the limitations of my body. <laughs> uh, yeah, in my mind, I'm you know I'm I'm 25, and I, I just finished playing college soccer, and mm-hmm. and yet my body tells me otherwise. I, um, yeah, I, I, as a theologian, um, I think about how how you know Genesis we're given this, um, well, from the very beginning, there's this temptation, Genesis three, um, that we would reach beyond, you know, and I think that's what John was talking about, but historically we know kind of two, 300 years ago, this kind of the culture changed in it so that we had this sense of as Westerners post and now post enlightenment that, you know, we can control nature, that we can control our body, that we can, we can ultimately, uh, we ultimately know what flourishing is and we can achieve it on our own. And so much of technology has been built to kind of bolster, I mean, for good things, right? Technology is great. Science is great. We keep saying that in, in it. John was saying that in his talks, and that'll be a theme in, in these podcasts. But 
but it also, it's given us a certain posture in that we often think, oh, well, I'm in control or, you know, I can, I can, not just when we're 40, but when we're 25, you know, like, oh, this, this invincibility. And I think one of the things that time does is it humbles us or it should. And this is why in Ecclesiastes, in, in, I believe it's, um, in chapter seven, while the, the teacher says, don't go to a party, go to a house of mourning, go to a funeral. Cause it's this sobering. It humbles us. It reminds us, uh, of our creatureliness. It reminds us that, uh, we are formed of dust and we will return to dust. And, and, and I think actually that is the path to wisdom. And I think that's what John's trying to get us to do. Humble us so that we can be wise people, humble us. So we fear God. And we grow in wisdom. Um, there was uh, the be- the beginning of the pandemic. Um, all I remember from the first three, eight, fifteen—I don't know—sermons <laughs> that were that were preached that we that I you know we sat in our living room and watched uh, you know over a over a over a screen here. The, the the theme that I remember that Father John kept hitting on was control and our lack of control, right? Um, what what lessons, Catherine, have you learned from that time? Especially in ha- having a child, uh, you uh, qu- quit a job, started a new phase of life. What lessons have you learned from that time about control that are are leading you toward a greater recognition of of dependence? Yeah. Um, hmm. I think, um, I mean, throughout the entire pandemic and I don't think I'm alone in this. I think if there's anything that I've learned, it's that we, we cannot predict what will even be reality tomorrow in the, uh, public health world. Um, so everything changes so quickly, whether it's COVID numbers, whether it's vaccine availability, whether it's, um, current strains, whether it's, um, safety, um, is it okay to go out? Is it okay to stay in? Um, and, um, I think that aspect of control, um, fear goes along with it quite oftentimes. And, um, when COVID started, um, um, we had just found out we were pregnant and there was some fear and anxiety about, um, being at a higher risk category and, and what do you do in that? Um, and I think one of the biggest lessons, um, I had to learn in that season was how do I continue to live my life and do the things that are most important that give life, um, being in community in a time where we weren't supposed to be in community, um, uh, um, uh, be with family, um, but also be wise and be safe. Um, how do I hold things lightly? And I think that, that, that phrase hold things lightly is probably one of the biggest Hmm. things that I, I can say that I am still learning, but has kind of been prevalent over, over the course of the past few years is, um, learning that I can have an idea of what I want to happen or how I want things to happen, but, more often than not, it's not going to happen that way. Um, so if I hold things lightly um, and expect that the Lord will be faithful as he always is, um, that's the most that I can hope for and the most that I can do. Um, and I think in, in motherhood, that's been a very clear example. I had a clear understanding or clear thought of what motherhood would look like. Um, and I started a master's program right in the middle of my pregnancy. Um, and... Uh, very quickly learned after giving birth that it was not a wise idea to try and take on a full course load while also, um, having a newborn. And, um, again, one of those other aspects of learning how to loosen my sense of control, um, when everything about a newborn is not having any control, uh, I'm, she is dependent on me as much as I am dependent on listening to her cues and her rhythms. And, um, it was hard, but also so sweet in many ways, um, as someone who likes to have control. <laughs> yeah. Micah, how did you guys think about this during the pandemic as a family? Um, s- similarly, it, it, um, it made us sl- slow down, which is a, a theme that will come up <laughs> later in, in the series. Um, and 
I, I guess that I recognized um, the goodness of God in much more simple things. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we had just moved to new house in, in Nightdale, still relatively new in, in Raleigh or in the, in the area. Um, and we, what, what it provided for us, the, the blessing in the middle of the, the, the cursedness feeling of it was an opportunity to understand home and to really feel placed and rooted and, um, you know, understand that, that little house that we had and the little bit of land that we, that we had, um, but also to prepare our hearts our, our, and, and our family, um, for, for what it looks like after that, when we, when we feel yeah. home here, um, and we understand that our, uh, our, our calling and our, 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 our placidness is, is in Raleigh, you know, from the vantage point of Nightdale, um, <laughs> what can that look like? So it was, it was, a, it was a quiet time and I'm a, um, I don't know if I, I guess I'd call myself an extrovert, but I, I definitely thrive on the, uh, the energy of people together in places. That was a really hard time for me to um, find different ways to do that. And I never loved the, like, let's have the Zoom party with all your best friends. That, that was not, I, I work online all the time, so I didn't want to do that when I wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I learned that uh, I'm, I'm dependent on, <laughs> on lots of uh, structures that I had set up in, in my previous life and um, was able to look at them differently through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, as you were talking, I was even thinking about um, what, it, I mean, for sure that was a, a hard season, but there, there was so much sweetness too. I know for Jimmy and me in that season, um, yeah, it did force us to slow down and with Jimmy working from home, um, uh, it was the season right before our daughter was born and I couldn't imagine not having that season of um, like being allowed a lot of time just to go on long walks or to get to know our neighbors a little bit more. Um, uh, of course, then we moved not too long after that, but um, still, of get, we got to know our neighborhood, so that sense of a rootedness and place, placidness. Um, but most definitely, um, the sweetness of of finding a deeper intimacy with with my with my husband in that season was really was really neat as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh- an ongoing theme that will will come up through these episodes is uh, Josh's love of books, uh, and we we all know it already. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, Catherine, you you have a background in in publishing uh, a little bit, and um, I've asked you one time what well, what are you reading, and you said, "Well, I'm I mostly read YA literature." <laughs> so I, I just wanted to just a curiosity. Um, so F- Father John takes us back to the story of Genesis. It comes up a, a couple different times through the series. Um, what what other stories have you read or enjoyed that um, lead you to similar themes that that he's pulled out here in this talk for us? Um, I guess my most simple answer to that would actually probably be um, any fantasy or any creative literature that you read um, reminds me of this, um, and that goes back to more first impressions when I was listening to his talk of what does it mean to be a cre- creature created in the image of God, and that's this aspect of creativity. Um, but specifically thinking about the dependency or being created in the image of God as a creature. Um, uh, I mean, the classics, Chronicles of Narnia, any of those books, probably more specifically The Horse and His Boy or um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader are two of the, two, the two that come to mind. Um, I think of Eustace when he's been turned into a dragon and he's reliant on Aslan to help strip him of those scales. Um <clears throat> And Aslan reminding Shasta, um, well, many of the characters of um, the fact that he he only reveals to each person their story, um, and and doesn't reveal that story to anyone else, um, but that he's the one who's revealing it um, as it's being played out. Um, and then my all time favorite, um, the the Wing Feather Saga, is probably one of the best. Uh, I think one of the best representations of, um, or. Most recent best representations I can I can think of um, of what creatureliness looks like. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, there's the last book in particular. One of the last few scenes are just a beautiful portrayal of um, recognizing um, and mourning what 
evil has brought into the world and being dependent and trusting the maker, um, which is um, God in, in this fantasy world, the maker for bringing redemption and restoration to um, Area, which is the, the fant- fantastical land. Um, yeah, but there's so many more. But as I said, I, I think um, pretty much any children's literature or children's book. Um, recently, I'm reading a lot of just kids' kids' books to my daughter. So, of course. Um, yeah, Ellie Holcomb has a great one called um, uh, Who Sang the First Song? And it's based off of one of the songs that she wrote. Um, but it's, again, another wonderful portrayal of um, it's God that sang the first song. It's he who made us, and we are good. Um, yeah. Speaking of kids, oh, I love those recommendations. But I just I, I had a thought there as we were going through. I think kind of – so I'm, I'm a parent of an 8-year-old and a 13-year-old. And um, so in this stage, one of the things I'm wrestling with is kind of my own kind of desire to deny my own – my own temptations to deny my contingency – my creatureliness and then how that impacts me as a dad and these expectations I have for my kids um, to, to do the same and not even acknowledging, you know, their own contingency and uh, creatureliness and that they're on this journey themselves. And so to see the kind of, um, dependency, the learning that as, as part of, um, you know, now part of even just being a, a creature, <laughs> you know, cause as they, as they get older for your kids, Catherine, for, for, for your daughter, I mean, they completely dependent when they get older though, you, you kind of start saying, Hey, how do we, how do we kind of manage this? And I, and I know in my own life, I think for me, there's this on one hand we're image bearers with this calling, which is, well, like grand, right? To reflect God, to go and create. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, and so in some sense, we have this grand, I mean, not in some sense, we do have this wonderful, majestic calling, but we're still creatures. We're still dependent. And we're made to pursue that calling in dependent relationship to God. And I think so many of so much of the time for me and for I'm guessing for other humans is, is that is that we're pers- we have this instinct to pursue that calling, but it's for our own glory. So it's this kind of, you know, as the English translations put it, uh, you know, selfish ambition. <laughs> and so in some sense, we're to have this ambition, but we're always to do it to reflect God and independence. Uh, to, to be dependent of him. And then, so how do you kind of, so I think for me trying to be faithful in my own life, but then how to, how to teach my kids. And this is where you guys can, maybe you thought through some of this. How do you teach kids to both like to recognize his calling to go pursue excellence because we're children of the King and he's called us to pursue that. And yet to still continue to keep in mind their dependency and their creatureliness. I mean, that in some sense, that's the call of Christian discipleship. <laughs> and then as parents, as us being all parents in the, in, on this podcast uh, for this episode, it's, it's also our calling for our kids. And, um, and it's not easy. <laughs> so how, so what do we do? <laughs> Solve that problem for me guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One, um, one approach I guess we've taken is to, um, I guess we'll just go right back to literature. We'll go right back to books is to, uh, point our children to, um, good creative things in the world as a way to recognize that, um, that, that otherness that we, that we live with, you know, the, the, the image bearerness, um, but that we're, we're, we're here, we're stuck in, in bodies that, that turn 40 and that have to get back surgery and that, that run races and, and, uh, and, and don't finish, you know, um, some, some of the stories with Catherine mentioned them all that, that we've, uh, loved in our, in our home, um, and, 
Oh, I guess I have a new one. I um, when I grew um, I grew up homeschooled uh, as well as our kids are, and we um, are, I loved the series of the Redwall uh, books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, my my oldest son has just started reading the Redwall books, um, and they're about you know adventure and journey and um, you know little mice and creatures and and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I'm he's barely into it. But I'm I'm waiting for the questions. That the um, that the stories will produce in him, where I'll have to be, you know, yeah. faced with those kinds of, um, well, what does this mean about the, the nature of the world, or what does this mean about um, how how good and evil exist uh, in, in the um, in the, the the physical environment that that we inhabit together? Um, so yeah, we've 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 relied on books, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything to add? Any wisdom, Catherine? Um. I mean, my daughter's 15 months old, so there's not a whole lot of conversation <laughs> happening. Uh, I mean, there is. I just don't understand what she's saying. Yeah, other than yeah. doggy, daddy, bye-bye. <laughs> no mom um, yet. Uh, she says it occasionally, but doggy, daddy, and bye-bye are her three Those most her common. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, well, never mind. I won't go into that. But, um, uh, yeah, I think similarly um, – uh, pointing out when we are outside um, and she loves to be outside uh, and it's really fun to watch her just take delight. I mean, her jaw will literally drop and she'll make this oh sound whenever she gets really excited. And it's really fun to watch her experience things for the first time because A, it helps me re-experience things yeah. with, along with her. Um, and I, I think that's one of the best ways for me personally, that I've seen the, the Lord at work helping me re-engage as a creature of taking delight in his creation and the delight in the things around us that are so mundane and so simple. And yet, because of my 15-month-old, I'm able to see them with new eyes. Yeah. Um, but being able to point to that and um, use that as an opportunity to say, isn't this like a beautiful world that God has created? Um, or, um, But in terms of, of, of limits, um, my husband can attest to this. I, I think I perhaps have come, I'm a little bit too sensitive to, maybe not too sensitive. I, I'm very sensitive to how to validate um, when things are wrong or when things are, when she gets upset, but also try to put boundaries and, and structures in that. Um, so one thing that I, it bothers me is if she's fallen, she's, she's fallen and she's crying. If someone says it's okay, it bothers me because the message that that's being sent is don't cry. You shouldn't have limits. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be upset about this, but I want her to know, and it's okay to be upset. It's okay to rec to cry out in pain. Um, but let's put structures in place so you know how to deal with that. Um, and so, um, that's a very small uh, way, but as I said, um, she's 15 months old. I have a lot to learn too. <laughs> well, I, I I think it's fitting that we we turn this corner to kids. I mean, just thinking of John's talk and, you know, Jesus's words about faith like a child and this kind of dependency, not childish faith, but a dependency that we learn from our own kids and their dependence on us, I think is that Jesus used that as a, as a lesson about the kingdom, about the type of disposition of the people who will, who will inherit the kingdom. I think one of the things that's come up in this conversation and, and obviously in John's talk is um, is this kind of dependency is a good thing. And I just, and to say that and to recognize that and embrace that, um, if you put on your, um, if as a Christian, we can see how, how this actually matures and grows and is necessary. It's um, to, to health. But, if you can imagine, and maybe for some of you listening to this, you don't have to imagine because you don't believe in God, but if you can imagine not believing God in that kind of scenario, scenario there's really, uh, I, 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 there's less, um, there's less good things that can be drawn. I would think it would be no more of, Hey, this, this isn't good. We don't have anybody to depend on, <laughs> you know, this is all we've got. And so this kind of mounting, anxiety because you know you're not a creature that's been created by a good god <laughs> you're not a, you're not a creature who's who can run to a home to a father who loves you <laughs> um 
and I don't, I don't say that if you're an atheist listening to this to stick it to you. Um, I, I, I just think, I just say that I would say as a Christian, try this on, try this way out. I think there's a good reasons to believe this as well, but this is kind of an existential one I'd ask you to consider. But I'm actually making more of the point to to Christians listening to this, which is how much do we functionally live like we're orphans, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we're not the creatures of a good God. Mm-hmm. So that when we start feeling anxiety, when we start feeling like it's all up to us, that's a kind of practical atheism. <laughs> so if you're... Um, and and so I think for me, like owning that, it's not just for me, it's not just, OK, I'm having a rough day here. I need to own at times my practical atheism and confess that to the Lord and and to repent and turn back and to say, hey, there's there's actually things I'm believing here, even if I if I say I believe and I'm trusting in a good God, but in the way I'm actually uh, kind of pursuing life and inhabiting the world. It's as if, and I think this is more the point when the psalmist says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's talking about a kind of practical atheism. He's not sticking it to our atheist neighbors. Oh, there, there's some, there's some bits and pieces that do that, but I think he's sticking it to us. And that's, you know, one of the tough parts and beautiful parts of the Bible is it's, it, you know, it comes at us all from different directions Catherine, you uh, said you started a new uh, master's program in the, the middle of the pandemic and just ever ha- after having Nia. I'm wondering if you could um, maybe connect some of some of the ideas that, that you heard and, and, and listened to here with um, what you're learning, what you're studying. How, how is it coming together for, for you as a, as a whole person? Yeah. Um, so I started a master's program in clinical mental health counseling. Um, so I, I would say um, in a lot of ways, the entire series, um, but definitely this talk, um, there's a lot of ways that I've seen connection. I think one way I have seen in my program this play out has been recognizing um, the role. And I mean, Josh, you were just alluding to this and what you were just saying, um, kind of the role that grief or brokenness plays in creatureliness um, and our dependence on God. And, um, I'm doing a certificate in trauma alongside my degree program. And I have thoroughly enjoyed, I'm not sure whether enjoyed is the right word, but, um, I've, I've found a lot of interest in a lot of what I'm learning about trauma has resonated with what I feel the Lord has put on my heart, um, to, in, in future ways to serve. Um, and also I, the more I learn about trauma, the more it resonates with how I believe we're created to be. Not that I believe we're created for trauma, but more that um, I, as a Christian, view the world from a lens of God's story. And if I view the world the world through that lens, that gives me a lens through which to look at trauma. And that gives me a lens through which to hopefully walk alongside people in the midst of trauma. And um, that changes the way that I approach sitting with someone in the midst of brokenness. Um, not that I bypass the way that they are feeling, not that I bypass the reality or the devastation that they have experienced. Um, but it alters the way that I'm able to think about and hopefully engage their own story, um, through the lens of God's story. And so, um, uh, I think one aspect, um, that has become even more true than, than ever is I can't imagine not having this lens or this this story about um, who God is and what that means for me and what that means for all of creation, that we are created for shalom and that we, in fact, live in a world where shalom is broken, um, right relationship and flourishing of all things and all creatures with God and, and with one another. And um, so when we recognize trauma or when we recognize uh, someone struggling, when we recognize uh, people experiencing pain, um, to me, that is an echo of the shalom for which we're made. Um, and yeah, the more I learn in my program, the more I see a great need for people to come alongside and hopefully walk alongside and, and 
point out how shalom can hopefully be restored. And that will never be, and that will not always be in overt ways, because um, I, I don't necessarily want to be a Christian counselor. Um, uh, but um, I think the nature of counseling in and of itself is healing, um, and healing is pointing towards restoration and reconnection and, and flourishing. And so um, in that way, um, that's de- very much dependent on the fact that I am a creature created in the image of God with shalom in my heart. Um, uh, but I've, I'm broken as well um, and have, am fully dependent on the grace of God um, who has restored my life and um, is restoring all, all things. If you're a local to the Triangle area of North Carolina, in your mid-20s to 40s, and interested in the discussions like the one you've been listening to, we hope you'll consider applying for New City Fellows, the discipleship program of the Center for Public Christianity. You can find out more by going to the Center for Public Christianity's website.